Hey everyone, it's Brad Gebhardt here from Big MX Radio. I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast, this one near and dear to my heart, because any time that I get a chance to cover Canadian moto is always a special time. I want to thank Bruce Willis from KTM Canada for getting on me about getting this podcast done. Carl is an absolute legend of Canadian motocross and uh, probably should have had him on uh, before we did over 950 episodes, but... We had him on now, and it was a great opportunity to have him on and also do an episode of Moto Albums where we take usually about 8 to 10 photos from a particular career and sort of comb through them and give you guys a little bit of uh, a sense of uh, sort of what this rider was going through in certain times of their career, different gear that they wore, how they brokered those deals, different teams, different sponsors, and just how they went about their uh, their career. I think uh, looking at some pictures can often bring out some really cool stories, and I hope that happened that happens throughout this episode if you enjoyed the audio portion of it you'll probably love the video portion of it which is also available on youtube you can watch watch this through and actually see the photos that we're talking about um we talked we we went through photos for about an hour so uh the first 30 minutes or so is just the two of us sort of talking about his career and just sort of uh some current events and what uh, uh what he's up to nowadays and then we get straight into the moto albums side of things so uh it's not photo albums it's moto albums and it's a big mx radio original content idea you guys have yourselves a great one enjoy this podcast and if you're watching on youtube thanks for watching Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast. This podcast will also be available on verbmoto.com. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt. With me on the line, none other than Canadian motocross legend, Carl Valancourt. Carl, it's been a long time coming for me to have you on the podcast. This will also be available on YouTube, but uh, pleasure to make your acquaintance, my Mm -hmm. friends. We are far apart as far as distance right now, but through the magic of the internet, we are now talking about your illustrious career. Hi, how you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing just fine. And I also want to thank Bruce Willis from uh, KTM Canada, who uh, I think there hasn't been a week that's gone by over the last little while that he hasn't said, hey, where's my uh, my Carl Valencourt uh, podcast? So, uh, yeah, we can thank him for uh, for berating me that I haven't yet had you on. Uh, that can now go to rest. Uh, Bruce, I hope you enjoy this episode. And, uh, yeah, like he, he sent me a picture of your uh ktm i think is it either a two-stroke or a four-stroke uh sitting in the uh the shop there so yeah the 300 two-stroke exactly beautiful well i'm a two-stroke guy as well i'm still you're running the carbureted bike from 2016 but it might be time to upgrade um how how much riding do you get to do nowadays uh you're you're a few years uh, past your pro career but sounds like you're probably still faster than i am today actually uh the 300 you saw <clears throat> sorry from uh, Bruce at KTM is the two-stroke I did return because uh, I busted my shoulder a few weeks ago. I chipped in my humerus bone, and uh, I just said, you know, that one day I fell. I, I cut my – I think I hit a sprinkler on the side of the track. The last track I rode, I opened – just cut my arm, and I lost control, fell on the shoulder. And the t- as soon as I got up, I saw the, the elbow bleeding. And I'm like, damn, I just I just had enough. I mean, as much as I like riding, I mean, I love it. Uh, I said, hell with it. So I went back to the truck. I taped my elbow up to go to the hospital and get it stitched. And when I got to the hospital, I mean, my elbow, my arm was hurting, but uh, not that much. 
And doctor said, we'll get an x-ray. And, you know, I could feel the collarbone was good, shoulder blade, everything. And I was moving it. And it came out with a chip, small chip. It was move 11 millimeter. And I had to get surgery. So wow. I got a plate and five screws. It's been like six weeks. So I could, I ride bicycle now. Like I always, I always did, but I can ride my bicycle. But I said, uh, hell with it, I'm done. So I turned back uh, the bike to uh, KTN Canada. I said, I'm done. I'm not riding again as much done. as I love it. Done. Done. I'm, I'm done. Even when I, you know, I rode <clears throat> here and there after I got done <clears throat> from uh, my career. It was 27 years from uh, 28 now to 1995. And uh, I crashed, you know, a few times, catch your elbows here and there. But I crashed last fall, broke some ribs and punctured my lung. And I came back from that like eight weeks after I was fine. It was on October 15th. And my son, you know, had a competition. We'll talk about it later, like you said. And uh, I was fine. Eight weeks later, I flew to Europe to see my son. I'm like, hey, I'm fine. I'm healthy. And my wife, you know, she didn't, she let me reroad. I mean, she never held me back. But she said, I don't want you hurt. And I said, no, no, I'm just riding, you know, to not wide open, but to certain level where I can be comfortable without crashing. But uh, came February, I was feeling really good. And I said, I want to ride again. I saw the 302 stroke and apparently it was the big deal. I was a 350 guy. I mean, don't give me that 350 four stroke is the thing. But I said, I'm going to ride a, to a, a 302 stroke. So I got to ride a little bit and, you know, I had this stupid little crash. It was out of a turn, turn right and not going fast, but the results is the same. And my wife was like, she had enough, but I had enough myself. And she said, I hope you quit. I said, I am done. So hmm. I am really done now. I'll be 54 in, in a few weeks. So I said, hell with it. I love it though. But Yeah. Well, happy early birthday. Uh, it saddens me yeah. to hear that uh, your days of throttle therapy uh, may be done, but it sounds like you've got a lot of other uh, <laughs> adrenaline pumping activities and hobbies that uh, will keep you going, including skiing, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. But yeah, um, like your your professional career ended essentially 1995. How long after that, like, I guess like the year after that, a couple of years after that, like, and obviously when you're not training and riding and, and doing it professionally, um, everybody sort of loses that, like that razor's edge right off the hop. But you, you're probably quite quick for quite some time uh, leading into like the late 90s, early 2000s, where you could probably still get around a dirt bike track pretty good. I thought I did. Um I remember Dave Gallen, he was my mechanic uh, the last, in 92 and 93, and uh, I retired in 1995. He came back, I'm not sure how many years after, maybe three or four years, he had that big Yamaha rig, he hired yes. uh, Doug Duba, and that one year is like, you know, I'll get you a bike, and I was running here and there, and I felt like pretty good, and it wasn't that long after I retired, I was still in shape. I went and ride here and there, and I still got a bike, but, you know, you don't last that long. You get the famous arm pump, but uh, I felt pretty good. Actually, the first, the next two, three years, I, you always, you got it inside of you, said, I, I'm not going to come back, but I could come back. What about if I would come back? It takes, you know, I'm sure everybody goes through that phase, and I did, like, maybe two, three years, 
And when Dave came around to do the Canadian tour, you know, he bugged me, but you know, I wouldn't have rode, but I thought the next, cause I retired, I was 26. So I think I could have been competitive easily until I was 30, but uh, I was going to college and, you know, I was working with, in the business and uh, it's just like no turning back, but uh, I felt pretty good. And then I stopped for like a few years and then I, I started riding much more, uh, maybe five, uh, when it turned 49. I don't know. I saw the big 50 coming. I had a friend that took me out to a trip in Costa Rica. And okay. he said uh, we rode those big 540 Husseberg trail riding. Yep. And uh, I really got the hitched in. And I said to my wife, I said, I want to ride again. I like to ride like they get a Fuan new uh, motocross back, uh, bike. So I started riding again, like full on, like 2018 and 19, 20, 21. I rode like a lot. I mean, we're not as much as a pro guy, but I rode quite a bit. So until until a few weeks ago. Fair enough. So uh, that's, it sounds like that's in the rear view mirror, but uh, what have you been doing late? Like, what do you do for work nowadays? We have a family business business. Uh, we manufacture windows and door for residential, light commercial. Uh, in Quebec. So uh, we keep busy. We're, I'd say we're doing pretty good. So uh, that as soon as I got done with the racing, I wanted to get the business degree in finance uh, at college and that was tough right after racing. I didn't feel like being in, in school like all the time while, you know, all my friends <laughs> and the fun time was racing. But, you know, everything has to come to an end. So met my wife, Karin. Uh, we had our first uh, kid, uh, Elliot, in 1999. And then Sandrine was born in 2001. So school, work, family, <clears throat> that's what I did. And that's what I still do today. Uh, still in the business and still work like crazy. So I must like it. Fair enough. Well, hats off for, to you for making that transition. <laughs> Not an easy uh, transition whatsoever. Uh, the life of a student, a uh, whole heck of a lot different than life as a professional motocross racer, traveling all over the globe and, and focusing on training. <laughs> and obviously it's something that you love to do. Uh, and yeah. you were great at it. Uh, a Canadian champion, someone who uh, who won championships over uh, Alan Dick as well as <laughs> Ross Rollerball Peterson, um, and, and just throughout a time where Canadian motocross was like maybe at one of its peaks. I think it also peaked again in the 2000s when yeah. they had a lot of talent coming in through there. But uh, you were certainly uh, part of a, a really iconic era, and you were successful during it. Um, so yeah, like I'm excited to sort of, uh, comb through some things with you today and, uh, and yeah, like I think, uh, like, uh, shades of, of when Dave Gallon was trying to get you to come out on a, on a four stroke or, or I don't know what kind of bike it was in the early, late nineties, yeah. uh, a similar conversation was probably had with Kevin Benoit, uh, earlier this yeah. year. The difference is, the difference is he took the bait. Uh, what are your thoughts on Kevin <laughs> coming back? I feel bad that he's had some bad luck as of late, but the guy can still go pretty fast. I know he was hurt. I got I saw he was hurt shoulder like last week. Shoulder he was, injury, uh, yeah. He's all taped up for the weekend. Is he okay? Actually, I don't know. I see, I, I follow his social media, but I don't know if he's uh, if he's getting better or if he's okay now. But uh, yeah, he's not getting any younger. It's pretty impressive what he did. Uh, go, you know, coming back with all those uh, crazy kids, uh, full of adrenaline. He's <laughs> still in his. Uh, I think he's thirty-four now. Or, yeah. or something, Kevin. 
So he did pretty good. I mean, he started winning. So even myself, I was like, I didn't know where he was going to be. So pretty impressive. But I mean, hats off to him. But uh, I didn't. I don't regret it. Uh, there's certain time in your life, you know, when you're racing, you're uh, really self-centered. Everything's so, uh, all about you. And um, you have to turn the page. I mean, everybody that's racing now, I mean, when you you, you you hit the next chapter, uh, it can be hard. I mean, you have to be prepared for it. And uh, it's not something if you do it too quick and you have nothing ahead of you, uh, it could be grueling for some of these guys. So uh, it, it's a tough thing to do. But uh, I did it, went back to school. I didn't like to be a student like you, you mentioned. It's not as cool, but uh, today it was by far the best thing I ever did. I mean, it's great that I raced, but best thing I did move on. I was fairly young compared to some of the other guys that retired. Uh, but something I wanted to do, and I'm glad I did it. Beautiful. Well, uh, very well said. And, yeah, I think, um, yeah, Kevin is currently scratching that itch. Uh, whether he regrets it or not is yet to be told. But uh, hats off to him. I think his first race ever as a pro was back in 19, or 2003. And Ryder McNabb wasn't born at the time. Uh, so there, that kind of, uh, it kind of puts into perspective just how, uh, just how, how, how young some of his com competitors are, but uh, hats off to him for, uh, riding out there with the kids. I mean, I, I don't know all these new kids. I saw, uh, Ryder this year a few times. And, uh, like I said, just for Kevin to hang out with all these kids is, is just quite something. Uh, I saw, I don't know much about him. I saw me raced in Texas and I, he did that future uh, race in Buchanan. So I think from what I saw, uh, kid's got a nice future. Maybe he'll go ahead and jump to the U.S., you know. We'd like to see another Canadian do that. Last one was sort of maybe JSR dated quite a bit, but it seems like after JSR retired, I don't know. I do ask some of the riders why they, go, they don't race that much in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard different stories from insurance or contract, but – I think the Canadian riders would gain to race the higher level of American motocross and supercross. And I hope, I mean, I, I heard Dylan was going to go uh, do last do the last few nationals in the States. So I hope we see some more Canadian on the U S circuit. Definitely. Definitely. Cer certainly. I, I see a lot of similarities of like Canadians jumping up to the American racing, very mm -hmm. similar to there's a lot of guys who are successful in the 250 class, but they're reluctant to jump to the 450 class, whether it's in the Canada or in the mm -hmm. States is like, they think to themselves like, all right, I'm this good. How good will I be when I move up to that next level? And if you're not going to be happy with that level, you don't think you're going to be able to make money at that level. Um, and I think even for guys who saw like JSR with the success that he did have in the States, uh, he's an all timer as far as uh, <laughs> Canadian motocross is considered. So if they don't think that they're on his level whatsoever, they're probably thinking to themselves, well, if JSR only had X amount of success, what would I hope to achieve? And, and, and if that discourages them, the, the result of that is, is sort of what we have is not a lot of guys who take the chance to go down there and uh, bet on themselves. He can start the year there. I mean, do the Supercross. Not that we have a good or big Supercross series, but um, for the outdoor, I mean, they could race. I used to tell uh, some of the riders here in Quebec, go to New England, go race with uh, Chris Canning. A lot of these guys that people don't know, 
they do 20 minute plus two laps models. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of fast local. Uh, I was Canadian champion. I would get spanked a lot of time. There's Dowd and Doug Henry. You'll say they're fast, but you have to be able to put it on the line. And it doesn't matter if, you know, if you want to race in the States full on, you got to go try it out in the winter. So it doesn't affect your Canadian series. And you're only going to gain racing for, with a better, better crowd, better, uh, better racer, faster, faster guys. Here in Canada, there's only a, not too many guys that that you know that were on our level. I mean, Ross, JSR, me. You mentioned Al Dick. I mean, when I was there, 88, 89, you had Doug Over. I can name a lot of guys. But as my career went along, there wasn't that many that could be up front. And I think you should gain from going to the U.S., you know, just better level. And maybe some of these guys, you know, think they're not going to make money doing it, but race there in the winter, in the off season. And if ever you get a contract, I mean, I'd say go for it. If not, well, go, go spend your winter there and race New England here. That's not too far <clears throat> for the Quebec guys and come the Canadian season. I mean, you'll be more than ready. But certainly, you know, even if you hang out at Club Mimics and all these uh, nice places in the winter, but you don't race, there's practicing and racing is a whole different story. I think you need to race more with better guys instead of just practicing. Yeah, I completely agree. And you weren't shy about that whatsoever. You know, Canadian motocross has always been more of a condensed schedule as far as fitting it more into the summer months. Of course, our riding season is a lot shorter. <laughs> It was not uncommon to see you race uh, East Coast 125 Supercross as well, which you were able to, that was some of your, your best results as a pro. And then uh, I think uh, your best national, uh, I believe it was 1990 Gatorback. What do you remember about that ninth place finish? Uh, yeah, the 7 1 moto, and I think it was it uh, 11th, 7 10 or 7 11 for ninth overall. Actually, it was really good. I felt, I felt, felt really, really good. And I did a seventh once in a national 92 Bud's Creek on the 500. So I did a few top 10, not enough, but I didn't race, you know, whole summer and the whole series. Uh, I wish I would have raced more, but the Canadian budget I had, I would, you know, use half of it to go in the States. And I know the Canadian um, people that would sponsor me understood, but a lot of them are like, Hey, you're wasting all their budget. But, you know, I would tell them, well, I am there, and this guy, this guy, this guy is there. And if we want to get better, we have to be there. Even if I kill all my parts budget there, I'm going to come here ready. But if I sit here all winter and ride around, do circle at, you know, a little track, I'm not going to be ready. So some of them understood and others not, not so much. But uh, for me, it was uh, not an option. I had to go there to get better. I love it, man. Well, you you had a, a great career against some amazing competitors. Uh, of the guys that you competed with most closely that are most sort of notable, uh, Ross Rollerball Peterson, and I also mentioned Al Dick. Which of those two was maybe the most fierce competitor? A guy that like if they were if if they were a in right in front of you or right behind you that you were most worried about? Wow, Ross. Ross was really strong competitor. Like physically, he was strong. And, you know, we would do 30 plus two and uh, you wouldn't really outlast this guy. You had to be strong until the last lap. And there was a time, I don't know, I haven't talked to other people that race with him, that compete with him, but I didn't like him. He didn't like me. And 
we want to run each other over and you know we center punch each other each other quite a few times uh i remember last time was uh, 93 in uh, bc on the island <clears throat> he smashed me at the end of the moto like pretty bad and at that right moment i had just stick my leg out and i figured you know if i were just had my feet foot on the peg he could have broke my leg so it got a little crazy at time but uh If you're asking me about fears, well, Ross was fierce. Uh, the thing about Ross, he was all power. I don't think uh, he's, I did bug him a few times. I said, I hope they put more jumps because he couldn't really jump that well. Okay. But then again, he he wouldn't jump that well. He always has the front end really high and case stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I looked at him and I, but then again, he did good. He man manhandled the bike on the track, but he was he wasn't all finesse. Uh, on outdoor track, uh, on hard pack, uh, he was really good on hard pack. I mean, he would he would stand up to stuff, and you know, I was more of a sand guy that was looking for a burn. So technically, on an outdoor track, on hard pack, he was really really good. Uh, Ross was good. Uh, Al was actually Mister um, Whole Shot all the time and go fast, like you know, half the moto and. He wasn't uh, as strong, I think, and in motos I could maybe catch him. So he was a great, great rider technically, but not as strong physically as Ross. And uh, I remember Hoover. Hoover was an animal. Uh, when I when I came through the ranks, uh, he was on top. I was like more top ten, so I didn't really race with him. And the last year, in 1990, he retired. So I wish I would race him more, but. He was an animal. Uh, let me think. Uh, I learned a lot from Zoli Barini. I used to race with Zoli Barini and go hang out with him at his house. He was he was an animal too. So there's a lot of good guys. I wish I would have raced with Pierre Couture too. Pierre Couture from uh, Drummondville. Right. Remember him? Yeah. Yep. He was uh, really good at Austin. He was a strong guy. So I think my mind's going fast. I'm trying to think, dropping <laughs> some name, but. We had a lot of guys, and obviously at the end there, when I raced with GSR, he was actually awesome. Uh, he had good technique, he was really strong, uh, and you know the rest of the of the story with GSR. So the center of the province of Quebec is a good rider now. It was a GSR after me, and uh, he was definitely a fish competitor. I would race him locally in a national, so we hung out a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. Hung out a lot. And now nowadays he's a – I said that on a podcast. He's a customer now. He's a <laughs> apartment buildings. And he buys my windows, so he's a customer now. So <laughs> I guess we get along good. Oh, and that's the second time that my camera has died mid video. Uh, oh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, uh, fierce competitors, and uh, <laughs> and you yourself are one as well. Uh, you mentioned Austin. And off air, we spoke about that track. It's a track that's near and dear to my heart. I was able to race it when I was very, very young. Unfortunately, it's no longer uh, on the Manitoba series. And it's actually they turned it into a hobby golf course, believe it or not, for a short period of time. Oh, it's done oh, yeah. now. It's gone. Yeah. Like even oh. there, there was an off, there was a track called Austin 2, which was just down the road, which wasn't nearly okay. as deep as sand. Um, so both of those tracks are kind of off the series. Thankfully, there's a track called Rough Woods that's maybe a mile from where the original track was that is still extremely deep sand. And we actually even had Ross out for a kind of a, 
uh, a Renaissance ride uh, about five, four, five, four or five years ago, and uh, and even raced the original layout or at least remnants of the original layout of the of the original track. Uh, both Al and Ross, I don't know how tall you are, but those guys are both pretty tall guys. Uh, mm-hmm. Long legs in the sand mm-hmm. was probably uh, an, an advantage for them. What about yourself? Uh, Al was the tallest of all of us, and he's yes. pretty well skinnier guy. Uh, I was six one. 190 and Ross. Yeah, so you're you're a tall guy too. Then you're also you're too tall to be a skier too. By the way. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the the best physiques to go skiing. Not mogul skiing, downhill skiing. I guess I would do, but uh, yeah, yeah, we were pretty big. I always thought when JSR came by, he had more of the physiques for riding dirt bike. He's mm-hmm. still pretty tall, right about six feet, but he's about 150 pounds. So every time I raced him on the 125, I said. You're about 30, 40 pounds lighter than me. So it's yeah. a horsepower per 10 pound. So you got four horsepower on me right off the bat. But uh, yeah, we were big, uh, heavy guys in uh, Canada. And I, I, I'll mention again, uh, Zoli Barini. He was a big guy too. Remember Tim Croft? I mean, right before me, when I was a young kid, they used to have that Yamaha trick team. T-R-I-C. There are some big boys on that picture if you look. So uh, yeah, we were big. It's not like a, we were no Jet Lawrence size. No kidding. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what know. it is, but yeah, the Canadians were always pretty hardy bunch. You know what I mean? They're always like yeah. a little, maybe a little thicker. Uh, maybe maybe it's the poutine. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, poutine is from, from Drummondville. You know that? <laughs> I did or know that. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So yeah, we oh, were yeah. big. So we weren't the fastest 125 guy, but uh, we didn't climb the hills very fast, but we held came down very fast on our front 25. But there you uh, go. we were under power from uh, against younger kids or smaller kids for sure. I like it. Uh, so this is the first first official episode of uh, of a, a series that I'm calling uh, uh, Moto Moto Albums. So Ooh. I always I'd imagine that uh, so many fans would love to like flip through a photo album with one of their favorite racers. And you're certainly a favorite racer uh, of many Canadians and Americans for that matter. Um, so I thought it would be prudent to make you episode one of, uh, of moto albums. So I've collected some photos. Um, some you've probably, I'm sure you've seen all these photos before, but, uh, what we're hoping for is to sort of dig out some stories about what's going on in the photo, what you remember about the gear or some of the, the sponsorship deals or, uh, Maybe some other stories from that particular year. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go. I have a – did you dig the Hall of Fame photo I had on Facebook? I thought about that after we hung up last time. So I do uh, have I a think so. picture. I, did, I dug out a lot of pictures from the Hall of Fame. So we'll see the picture you have. Maybe it's the one I have on my Facebook, maybe. So let's check it, them out. It, it just might be, but uh, we'll, we'll, right. we'll find out in just a moment here. Uh, right. So we're going to share the screen and flip over to – Moto albums. Guys over at Verb were nice enough to to put this together for me. Can you see that? Yeah, I can see that. All right. Moto album. Episode one. That's pretty cool. You went you went way back now. You went with an old guy. That's pretty good. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Well, we're gonna we're gonna pull out some stories here. So right off the hop, first of all, I love this this Fox jersey. Um, but I feel like the 44 machine is even further back in the annals of time. Uh, so uh, what are we what are we looking at here on the 44 machine? Uh, that was a motocross school. They used to call the Can-Am motocross school. Remember those orange bikes uh, that were made in Valcourt, Quebec here? 
Yep. Uh, there's a motocross school in St. Gabriel de Brandon. You remember that? You used yep. to have oh, a yeah. Grand- they're doing a big Can Am event next week, actually. I think or next next yeah, month. Well, a different Can Am, but yeah, they're side by side now. But oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, that was a, a Honda MR50. That was a cool looking little bike. And I would ride around the pit all the time, and all the bigger guys uh, with the bigger bikes would ride on the on the track. And I was a king of the pit. I was a pit rider at that age. I was eight eight years old on that picture. And that's pretty cool. You found that. And on the right, it's uh, I was 11 years old on a Yamaha 80. It's Saint Julie, and uh, actually I did a post a few years ago on that same corner in Saint Julie. They had a KDM photo shoot, and I would go there at the exact same corner, uh, similar position. That was pretty cool. So I was a young kid then, 11 years no old. No kidding, uh, yeah. Fox Gear guy. Uh, that's that's pretty yeah. early in the Fox uh, like time period of when they were. Uh, making gear um yeah what can you tell me about uh like do you remember do you remember getting this gear was it a sponsorship deal whatsoever or your parents shelling out for that yeah we paid we paid everything have the jt uh nothing match had some weird i see uh, that i think i had almond gloves uh the jt uh (laughs) logo on the helmet there's an old simpson helmet that i think i had for like four or five years at least answer mm-hmm. bars and i had the pants actually matching the jersey so it must it was a race day because the rest of the time i had nothing that matched for practice that was my race outfit and i had those big yofa shoulder pads you can see like, like yeah. big shoulder i was a skinny kid at that age so and i had the i bought that year we bought my dad bought actually two yamaha 80 from gregoire and i remember remember bob Hanna had that trick fat number plate so yep. we tricked that out. My brother tricked that out for me and all of our bikes. So at this big fat front number plate, which was the thing uh, in the early eighties. Yeah, cool. no, that's that's a that's a great look right there. And uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to tell you can go back in time. Um, for those who actually don't know, the reason why a lot of guys had their it's funny. Like nowadays, you have the number on the helmet as like a <laughs> custom paint job, but uh, back in the day, it was actually rule for the CMA that you had to have the number on the side of the yeah. helmet in the case yeah. of a mud race, uh, because they did lap counting back in the day. Uh, and that was actually a rule even in the AMA until about the mid two thousands, uh, that you had to have the number on the side of the helmet. Uh, and even so you'd see that if they didn't have it on the paint job, uh, in a mud race, they'd have to have that little card on the top of the helmet to uh, let everyone know yeah, what they, number you are. Yeah, I did. We did that a few times, but, uh, yes, you had to have to have that. And did you see the, the duct tape on the visor? I see the duct tape, yeah. What was the cool thing to have? Duct tape was the thing on the visor. So, And it was a money day, so I'm sure that it, it did help. But I had it on all the time for whatever reason. The pros had it, so I had to have that duct tape. That was cool. <laughs> oh, for sure. And then uh, um, uh, the bomber would use blue. Like, he'd have a blue helmet, and he'd use blue duct tape across the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I did the gray one. I wasn't too stylish, but I did the gray one. So these were the days when there was no transponders. So no. <laughs> the, the the score uh, on the side of track had a pretty tough job. Any significance behind the number 92? You, like you, you, you carried that number for quite some time. You still ran it <laughs> on your, your uh, uh, the 300 until yeah. you uh, hung up the boots? Yeah, actually, uh, I don't remember actually why 44 – I can't tell you the story, but uh, we're three brothers. I was 92. My older brother, Pierre, was 95. 
my brother Eric was 92. And it's pretty much my brother, I think, that came up with the 95. Uh, I should have to ask him. And we had a trailer, and it was number 92, 93, and uh, 95, the three brother uh, when we go on at the races. So that's why. But so until that day, I stuck with it. And it's not because I love Judy Weisel, not at all. Remember Jody? And uh, <laughs> people had asked me before that. So, And then my 92 ended up being uh, 192. That was number from the motocross section, guys. But uh, nothing special to it. I mean, it was my brother that chose his, his number, and I matched something around that. We had to be in the 90s, so that's why. Simple as that. Well, fair, fair enough. Well, here in Manitoba, I'm number 95. And uh, yeah, that's a number that's uh, near and dear to my heart. So uh, oddly enough, uh, it was given to me by uh, CMRC back in the day uh, when um, the numbers were like nationwide. So you were only allowed to have two digit numbers, like whether you're in Ontario or Manitoba, you had to pick a two digit number that you were like, that's from coast to coast. And uh, I was running number 39. And someone else had it. And uh, yeah, they made me change. And the only two-digit number available uh, across the nation in the 85 class was uh, 95, and I've st stuck with it ever since. Uh, let's see what let's see what else we got here. All right, this must be late in the career. Uh, I, I, I I do not. Ex I, you're you're gonna have to uh, walk me through this gear a little bit. I see answer pant or answer boots, yeah. but that's all I can really recognize. I recognize the guy in the Oakley goggles next to you here. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, take me through this photo. Uh, that was an arena cross. Well, it's a, it was called Mini Stadium, uh, St. Tip, uh, the Western Festival or Cowboy Festival they have there. And the, the first guy on the left is Buddy Ford, who was the promoter. Next guy with uh, o OTW gear, I mean, it was Mike Jones. He always had that ugly gear, but he was getting paid, I guess, but – I told yeah. him that actually. So that was Mike John. He was really good. He was racing a lot in Canada. He was, a, he was another animal too. He was another another type of animal. And is that so Mad Mike? Really, that's Mad Mike Jones. Yeah, that's Mad Mike Jones. Yeah, I thought. Holy crap! Yeah, Matt, uh, Morgan Racing. You know, we had always had a lot of those American guys coming to race in uh, Quebec and they were doing the Canadian Series, and uh, that was that was Mike. Uh, Trophy girl, me, <clears throat> I was always an answer guy. Uh, Rick Sharon was really good to me. And from uh, 87, 88, I was wearing uh, answer. Yeah, starting 87, answer gear. And I was answer gear all along my career until 1995. So Rick was really good. He was, uh, uh, in a way, a mentor. Uh, he always brought me down to down to earth where – I would show up to him <clears throat> in uh, Vancouver at RM Motorsport. Remember RM? Yep. And uh, I want gear, I want money, and you know? all. I thought it was pretty cool. I was winning races, and he would tell me, Well, Carl, I mean, I don't sell more gear because I give you gear and pay you. But I do it because I like you and I like motocross. But, you know, uh, and he always had to get had some good always business counseling. I went to actually I went to see him a few years ago at his house in Langley. So he would take me down to earth and I look at it nowadays. He was he was spoiling me. And uh it stuck. I mean, I, I wouldn't have changed for a few more dollars. He was just really so good to me. And uh he treated me well. Al Jaggard was there too. He had a lot of good people there. So 
I was an answer guy from uh, day one till the end. Uh, and on the right there is JSR with the young uh, JSR right there. He's a kid. The, the Biafi gear. And I don't know. He had some. Uh, I can't read with that. Oh, a Titrex sponsor. I don't know. Looks like it. I have to ask him. And that was 1994. Uh, I was 24. And it was actually a 125 main. Go figure. Me and Mike. Mike was a pretty. He was a pretty muscular guy. I remember seeing yep. that Mike once. He's good on uh, 125, though, oddly enough. Like, good on 125 for a guy who's that big. Yeah. So we, we beat JSR that night, as, as amazing as it is on a 125. So that's the picture from St. Tit. And so what what's, what series was this? Was it a, a Quebec uh, Arena Cross mm-hmm. series? or? That sure is pretty weird. They had an Arena Cross series, mini stadium series, and at a Supercross series, where Supercross was just Montreal and Toronto. You know, I wish I would have combined all of it together because we had a lot of good Canadian, like top Canadian guy doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think we may, we might have done maybe two rounds of it. So I won that, but I don't put it that on my resume. It was To me, it was just a one event, a few events deal. So, yeah, uh, that was the mini stadium series. I think it lasted maybe a few years. Fair enough. Well, the, the trophy girl looks really happy to be there, and she's wearing some nice light yeah, it looks jeans. like it's no Red Bull monster setup like we have nowadays, huh? <laughs> That's for damn sure. What else we got here? Okay, so this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is Montreal Supercross, unless you can correct me. Where, who, we know you're, uh, what, what's going on here? That's Toronto, uh, Toronto Supercross, okay. Skydome, uh, 1990. And that's me in the main. That's Larry Ward in the back. Uh, okay, that's, that's Big Bird. Yeah, Big Bird. Uh, he showed up. He was another of the recruits of uh, Morgan Racing, showed up just for that one race. And that race, actually, I got third. It was uh, Larry Ward. Second guy was McGrath. And McGrath did that one race all by himself. I think it had a Supercross or a race not too far the week after. And okay. that's the first time I met Matt McGrath. Actually, he was really cool. I was stayed close to him. Uh, and I was third. So that was the main. Oh, right. Right in there with some yeah. uh, some top American guys. <laughs> this What year is this? Is this 91? Uh, uh, yeah, 1990. 1990. Okay. So, yeah, like, think... McGrath is still on 125 for two more years after this in on Big Bike. Actually, that was the year it was on the Cowie. Okay. And, and uh, he did race a few supercars. And that the year after, he was on the peak uh, bike. And after that, he went like skyrocketed. Yeah. So became a multi time supercars champion we all know about. Certainly. What, what was the connection for, with you and Esso? Like, is that an Esso Canada sponsorship? <laughs> like, that must have been pretty big back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, when Hoover. You know, we had Sirwell that had Labatt and Hoover at Esso. And I went to see Texaco. I liked the Texaco star. And I said, well, I, you know. So you had some you, sweet, you had a sweet black jersey with the, the red Texaco yeah, in the middle. Nice cotton black jersey for summer in Canada. Yes, I did wear that. And uh, we went to see, we put up like a resume and we sent our things to Texaco Canada. And we said, well, they're com- the, comp- the competitor, um, 
Esso as a writer, and uh, we did our little thing, me and my brother. We went there, and the one guy at Texaco, we caught his attention, and he called the guy. After he said, if Honda is sponsoring you, is interested in you, I want to hear what they have to say. So he made the phone call to uh, one of the big guy in uh, Honda Canada, and, you know, he sold me to the thing, and they sponsored me. So 88... 89, I was sponsored by Texaco, and halfway through the year of 1989, Esso Imperial Oil bought Texaco. Oh, so there you go. Right there and then, as they made me switch, halfway through the 89 season, they repainted my truck and I had to redo all my gear and started 89. Uh, my Esso sponsorship, sponsorship I had from 88 until 1993. There so you it, was go. Pretty good. it was a pretty good deal. 91, 92, I had really good deal. Good money with him. I was stoked. That was really good. No kidding. That that is some outside the industry sponsorship that I think we we would we were jealous of to this day. Um like also how are you communicate how did they communicate that with you that Texaco got purchased? Like was they just like a letter show up in the mail and say, Hey, uh yeah, or they, did they you get call. a phone call? The old phone, you know, they call. Yeah, rotary phone. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I might have had a fax back then, I don't know. Uh, we went to their office in Montreal. They made their phone call. I think they called like not even more than two weeks after that. And they said, well, we got this, this, because we, you know, we showed the budget for the year. I know they were going to take all of it, but I was surprised what they took out of it. And at the end of that first year or second year, I don't remember, uh, the way they measured their investment, uh, yeah, winning races is cool, but the big thing for them was to have my picture in the newspaper with the SO logo. And I had the I had the front cover once, like a small picture in the front cover for the Montreal Supercross. It must have been in 1990. I finished second there that one year and I had the, the, the picture. And in the sports page, you know, I had a big picture. And my mom would pick all those newspaper articles make a big scrapbook, and I would show it to them at the end of the year. And that's how they measured the investment. Wow. That's really cool. That page in the sport is worth X amount of dollar. And at one point, I'm like, the way they were telling me how much it was worth, I was like, well, I'm a deal, sort sort of, you know what I'm saying? So that's Mm -hmm. how they measured it. Nowadays, it's, you know, how many followers you have on Instagram. Back then, it's how many pages and I remember I was pretty uh, good friend with two the two big newspaper in Montreal, La Presse and Journal de Montréal. And the sports guys would say, call me every week, good or bad. I don't want you to call me and have your cool win. Call me when it's bad. Call me when it's good. And I'm going to follow you all year. And they did do that. Sometimes we'd call awesome. them on Sunday night. Man. I sucked. I got beat. I crashed. And, you know, it's okay. They would still make an article. So actually was really good. It made me, uh, gave me the discipline after the race to call somebody to, you know, when I did good, it was fun. When I yeah. did bad, it was no fun, but they followed Taste me the all year long and they did respect me for that, good or bad, all the way until Montreal Supercross. Because the year hey, season was May till September. You could see me. I was maybe, I guess I was popular for motorsport in Quebec. I was, I was no ball and stick guy, but for motorsport, I was fairly known, I think. Absolutely. And I think there's something to be said for, for like, list, like, uh, 
like facing the music when things go bad and also like uh as a as a guy who does interviews i i love when guys well, they're more than happy to, to do an interview, whether they did poorly or bad and yeah. uh, or good or, or like, you know what I mean? Like no matter what. And I think people want to hear that story. In fact, sometimes the, the stories about why things go poorly or this, that and everything, um, it, it honestly turns out to be a better story than like, oh, yeah, I was just feeling it and I like, crushed it that yeah. day. Like um, yeah. th- those things are more relatable to fans and they, it, it kind of humanizes the races a little bit. It's always cool when you win. You can say whatever you want. You're the baddest and the coolest, but uh, you know you, you can still be. Uh, you, you learn through those lo- those losses. So it was a good. Uh, it was good. It's a good thing I did that. So speaking of uh, of doing well, uh, this like this guy looks pretty happy. Uh, the number man. one, and is, is that your old man behind you there? Yeah, I was gonna say why well, my dad's happy. I'm happy too. Uh, that's 1985. I was 15. Uh, Lethbridge. Uh, I think they still have that track nowadays, but I went there once, never went there again. Uh, Lethbridge, Alberta was a hard packed little track, sort of a dust bowl, but uh, it was a fun track. Not, not too many big hills, but it was a fun track. And uh, that my dad on the left, we drove, uh, he took some time off from work and we drove to the uh. It was called the, the, the Amateur National, it's, whatever it was. It was on, our only national in the year. So I was an intermediate, which is uh, was a senior back then, which made, doesn't right. make sense. Remember they had junior, senior, expert? Yeah. There was novice, intermediate. So that was the Amateur, amateur National in Lethbridge. And uh, I think I was the first one to win two classes. I won 250 and 500 that one year. And I got beat in the 125 that year. So I was pretty stoked. That was a, uh, I think that was my 500. Yeah. I had just gotten a 500 two, three weeks before that. Just How old the, are you here racing a 500? I'm 15, but I was a big guy. So no kidding. Actually, I rode the, I rode a five. I, I hadn't ridden a four, uh, 500 the fall before when I was 14 at the last race of the year. Some guy borrowed me as a CR 500. I loved it. So the next year I went 125, 250, and there was there's a couple of guys that were doing the 500. I thought were all by themselves. I could smoke them in 125 and 250. So right before the national, I said let's try to go for, you know, a three peat or the three class thing. I only won two. So I bought the five. We got the 500 like two weeks before that. I raced one local race and we went out west. What was it about the 500 that uh, kind of suited your style? Like uh, a bit of a more of like a kind of smooth operator, uh, just enjoyed the way the bike uh, kind of hit. And and what, what was the key to making these things go fast? Well, the one thing, I was a bigger guy. I was a bigger kid. And second, you know, winning the 500 in uh, in those days was the thing. That was the, like the big class. So for me to get better and be the best, I had to handle the 500. In the end, uh, through the years after, it didn't really change. But I remember when Pierre Couture in Drummondville was number two and Ross would win the 500. Every time we would go to the races, me as a kid, I would watch the 500 guys. was like the MotoGP thing, you know, or the MX1 yeah. sort of thing. So that's why for me to, 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 to be good in the 500, I had to get one early and, you know, get my ass in gear if I wanted to win. So that's why we got the 500. So are, are we buying JT gear or are we getting a deal on this stuff at the time? 
Uh, actually, that we, we went to Florida that year before, and we went to a big dealership in Orlando. <clears throat> we were pretty pumped because we saw all the gears in the magazine that we couldn't get anywhere. So me, my dad picked everything. So, yeah, when we were buying gears, JT was the thing. So, but you know, I have eye point pants and JT, JT shirt. <laughs> I like that's, it. No, yeah, that's too funny. I don't know. I had the... I'm trying to remember the boots I had. I, I think I had Axel boots. There you go. Oh, Just like, putting things like together. It's like a pizza mix and match. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, well, you're 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 a little bit more put together here. Uh, yeah, the yeah, number yeah. one. I love the blue plates, by the way. Like that that yeah. era, the chest protector, yeah. nothing on the back. Uh, answer gear. Honestly, this era of answer gear is really really solid. I think they should come back and um yeah, and yeah, then yeah. do a throwback to this but uh, you're also you're always an awry helmet guy uh with the detachable yeah, yeah. front uh, nose piece and all that um yeah, yeah. yeah take me through this photo if you could as local race uh bay saint paul uh 1991 um uh, i crashed in uh, earlier that year i separated my shoulder which i have a souvenir from here there you go a chromio clavicular three and grade three sorry and that was a local race. So that bike was ultra fast. Uh, 1990, I won like the overall, and they made that overall number one plate. And I was like the five, I won the 500, but I didn't win 125 and 250. So I had the number one, but uh, I, I had won the uh, number one uh, in the 500 the year before, but they made that overall plate. So Ross had the number one, uh, white and black and me blue and it was the same thing they had that in the u.s a few years before remember that when Bayley grand national was, champion yeah, yeah yeah that's what they called it so uh, that's why i had that number one play uh that by and i had a, a 1991 that overall in 91 i had like seven 250 uh three 500 or two 500 and three 125 i mean honda had a big budget and gave me tons of bike, and sadly I got hurt uh, the second round, and I was off for like six, seven weeks, and I came back at the end of national. I won the first nationals I did. I won the last one I did, but it wasn't enough to you know to keep the number one plate. And but my bikes were always fresh in mint. It was all Pro Circuit done, uh, motor that was done by Pro Circuit, and suspension factory connection. And obviously, answer gear and everything. Uh, oh yeah, is that is that factory connection on the on the yeah, front? Yeah, forks? of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no way. <clears throat> that bike was so badass. I loved it. It was fast. I mean, I felt so good on bike. As much as I like riding 500, 250. I mean, I like the 250 uh, more. And the story about factory connection. Um, when Pro Circuit would do your motor. It would work, work right off the bat, which was great. But suspension-wise, it was too complicated, you know, to send my stuff in the U.S. So I ended up meeting, uh, it was Mike McAndrews. He was a Kawasaki yep. mechanic. Remember the name? Yeah. And he was in Vermont, and I had heard about it in Florida. And I got my pro circuit stuff, and, it, you know, it wasn't what I wanted. I needed to test. So we drove to Factory Connection when it was in Mike McKendra's house in Vermont, and I started with him uh, in 1989, 
And from 89 on, I went all till the end of my career with Factory Connections. So uh, that's that's who did my bike was great. And a few years after that, it was Ricky Z Fielder that bought Mike McAndrews. Cause he got a job at Rock Shocks. So that, that's the story behind Factory Connection. And still to, to this day, uh, my bike was done up by Factory Connection last year. My last bike. Mike uh, Haste. You know Mike Haste? Yep. He's a mechanic for me, uh, for Ross That's and right. me. He lives not too far down the road from where, where I'm at right now. He lives in Drummondville, and he still works for Factory Connections. So <laughs> nobody gets his suspension done in Canada. Uh, so I drove to him, and he took it to the States because he, uh, he, he drives there a lot, back and forth. So I was lucky to get my stuff done by Mike. So. That was a good deal. Always a Scott Goggle guy, too. Uh, I think you're running uh, roll-offs here, but uh, why, why always the Scott Goggles? Just uh, like the product? <clears throat> I like the product, and I like the setup. Uh, Bevo uh, in the States was always treating me really well. And I got hooked up with him. Uh, that year I did the Supercross. Uh, I was ready, uh, staying at a friend's house in Ocala, Florida. A guy named Dawson Ransom. We were good buddies. I went to his house and he used to live in Pennsylvania. And Bevo was friends with his parents and they were friends with Bob Hanna. So I got a few goggles the year before through R&M and everything. <clears throat> and then that year in 89, I would, hang, I would hang out with Dawson. Bob Hanna was there and Bevo would hang out there and, you know, his truck was there during the week. So... <laughs> I got everything. He would he would throw stuff, uh, boxes of stuff in my cube van during the week. He treated me really well, and from that day on, I was always a Scott guy till the end. I was I was had good uh, connection with sponsor. I was really loyal uh, to whoever sponsored me. A ride helmet, answer Scott factory connection. Very loyal. Uh, family values we still have nowadays. So. I was the same. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have changed for a few dollars. So, once I had a good, uh, good setup and good service, I wasn't going anywhere for money. Who, uh, who did this paint job? Uh, the the checkered flag <laughs> looks pretty good. This is a pretty iconic look for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I actually had a few guys in Quebec that did the uh, uh, my helmet. Uh, everybody would paint helmet back then. So, but this one guy in Quebec was pretty good. So, he did. Yeah. It was, you know, mostly his creation. Uh, uh, there are artistic people, so I would send him my helmet. I'm going to do this and that. What do you want? I, obviously, I want the number there, the right helmet, and this all the time. And the Scott, that was pretty good. But he would tell me I'm going to do this, and I would always pretty much agree. So my helmets were pretty cool. I was pretty uh, pretty spoiled in that, too. So it was uh, art uh, I had Arco in uh, New England that did my helmet. This guy was from Quanticook, not too far from here. Did my helmet. He's pretty cool, dude. What uh, uh, do you still have? A few uh, relics from your like uh, like helmets and stuff yeah. from from your, your your racing days? Yeah. Yeah, uh, actually, on Instagram last year, I got uh, uh, Kimpex is an Arai distributor. Okay. And uh, they gave me an Arai last year to ride. Last year and this year, obviously, I had it. And I took a picture with my Arai helmet from last year and the old relics I have from the, because when I started riding, like, again, uh, more and more, uh, 
in 19, uh, in 2018. I took some of my old Rai helmets from downstairs, but they're all dried up. All the yeah. foam. All the foam's was, coming apart. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it was, you know, it's really flat. It wasn't doing this job. So <clears throat> I got a, another helmet from Kimpex before they gave me that rise. So I had some old relics I took pictures of. I, I think I kept like six or seven of them. Mm-hmm. So pretty badass. It was, uh, those, those were the best helmet though. I mean, have you ever tried a ride? No kidding. I mean, I've never I'm worn. Kidding. I've worn an Arai uh, street bike helmet. Never worn an Arai motocross helmet. I, I got. I got to admit, you're probably one of the only guys who made that detachable face guard look really good. Like uh, I never liked it with uh, uh, Stanton back in the day or uh, uh, um, Guy Cooper. But this this is a strong look. I'm not gonna lie. It's, it's a good looking yeah, helmet. Yeah, yeah they they were really comfortable. We used to go to Daytona, and they were, they had a pretty cool budget. So if you would go to them, and uh, you know. I want to be your guy, and uh, they were pretty open. So we'd go to every year to Daytona. We would get like three or four helmets leaving from there, and if you need something else during the year, maybe get another one or two from Arai. But they would they would have a ton of helmet. You would tell them, "Why well, I need this size," and you know, I always got an egg. Uh, they had to be white, so they got painted. Nowadays, yeah. it's cool to have an egg, but uh, back then they had to get painted, so that was the thing. So. Pretty That's spoiled. Daytona cool. was the setup where you get your free right helmet. There you go. And you, yeah, you you raced Daytona more than a, a couple of times. Um, yeah. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite photos. And like one of the things that I I, I absolutely love about your era is that uh, it's different than mm-hmm. nowadays. Where uh, yeah, you show off your your Instagram following this that and everything. But I, I still feel like like I almost feel like now even though there's more connectivity and easier ways to connect between racers and sponsors than ever before, guys are so much more sheepish or so much more uh, like they, they, they don't put themselves out there or, or knock on doors like they used to. Whereas you guys, in order to go get sponsorships and when yeah. you get hooked up, like you had to go put your face out there, go met, go meet some people and, and, and make some stuff happen. Um, and like, dude, like, uh, holy hockey hair! This is that might be the the best. I think you might have to bring the mullet back. Um, you're <laughs> like, yeah, no no homo, but you might be one of the best looking motocross racers. Uh, you, like, <laughs> I, I see why you were single all throughout your professional career. <laughs> well, you know, it's a good time to be single. Uh, definitely, <laughs> uh, you know, driving around the country it was that was too much fun. But that's we're gonna leave it at that for now. There you go. Uh, I guess I was pretty fluid. It must have been uh, my French uh, accent with the, the girls that made it. I, must, I don't know. I can't say. I mean, <laughs> you can ask. You can ask other people. But uh, I did pretty good in that department, I guess. And uh, yeah, that answer gear again. Uh, I, th- I think they had some such badass stuff uh, uh, in the '90s. Uh, I think it was too hot, that jersey, but then again, it was pretty cool. I don't know if you remember that gear. If you, I think maybe you wore it and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that bike, though, I mean, Paul Pemex uh, <laughs> teased me a few uh, few months ago. They had something on an old Cowie bike, and he tagged me on an Instagram. And I said, well, that 1992 bike was just horrible. Really? Uh, that's a was- spine frame. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is... I mean, that bike was a pig. Yeah. It was slow. Uh, I could go on with this bike. It was a tough year 
gone from that 1991 Honda that you saw a few pictures before right. to that bike, and they had changed it the year before uh, to wherever, whatever it was. I mean, I remember coming in Florida through some burns, and the the, the clutch wouldn't disengage. So you okay. would come in, like, you know, uh, pull the clutch in, rear brake, and you want to redirect the bike, and the bike, I would overshoot turns because – I don't know the clutch basket. There was a. I needed I needed some better parts that I got along the way during the season, but it was a tough winter and the bikes would always blow up, and they would tell me, "Well, change your jetting because of this. Change this because of that." I mean, we know all that. We've been doing that for years. We'll rejet them, and we know what to do. Everything we did on other two strokes I've had before, never had any problem. And Dave Gallen had just started with uh, started with me. And, man, did he work his ass off. I mean, it was insane taking those motor parts. I mean, it was nonstop. I was, it was like a time bomb. <laughs> it was always mm. going to explode. And, you know, as we got to the end of my uh, trip in Florida, January, February, March, I remember we stayed after Daytona. It was early April, and I wanted to ride a little more. And I remember one day I came to the truck, and I said, uh, it wasn't my race bike. It was my practice bike. And I said to Dave, I don't think we're going to make it. This thing is just not going to make it. And we packed our things and rode to Quebec. And my frame must have been broken in like six or seven places. The thing would vibrate. Uh, we made some phone calls. Um, we got some few parts from Kawasaki that came from the U.S., I think. With the mm -hmm. clutch, we made the, a big difference with the clutch. Anyway, we welded the thing and maybe maybe five pounds of <laughs> schnada welding everywhere. It was insane. But halfway through the year, actually, the bike was, you know, fairly decent. It wasn't as good as my Honda, but it was actually not too bad. The 500 was good, uh, but the 250. Yeah, KX 500 would have been good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the same bike. It had been the same bike for many years, so mm -hmm. it really didn't do anything to that bike. We welded the frame, whatever, wherever it was uh, broken in anything. But uh, the 250, especially the 250, was unreal. I didn't like it. Mm. I'm going to leave it that for now. So that was my... Why uh, switch to Kawasaki in the first place? Uh, like you say all the time, we have to put ourselves out there and sell, uh, sell ourselves. And at the end of 1991, Honda had a major uh, budget cut. And I made some phone call. and had nothing. And I don't know, am I still racing or not? Mm. So I got a... I got in touch with Alan Labras, who was Miguel Duhamel's agent. Okay. And he told me, I have good connection in Kawasaki and get you something. I said, whatever you can get me or else I'm just going to go buy Hondas. I wanted to go buy Honda. And he got me a, a, a good deal. Too bad the bikes weren't that great, but he got me a deal with the Kawasaki. So and Suzuki was pretty loaded up too that year. And uh, probably Yamaha too. I mean, we made the phone calls everywhere. So we ended up with Kawasaki that year, Alan Labras. That's that's the story. There you go. And, and a, a pretty heavy uh, answer uh, gear on top of that. Those those cotton jerseys were, uh, they, they look good. But uh, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, in, in plus 30 heat, that would have been, uh, it been yeah. pretty hot, especially the black stuff you wore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool looking, but yeah, it was hot. I remember that. Nothing flexible and it was thick material. I mean, it was resistant, but... Uh, it was pretty hot, that's for sure. <laughs> I like it. And I, I also love. Do you do you have a set of these high flyer cards, or do you at least have the ones of yourself? 
Uh, I must have one. Uh, yeah, I'm sure I do. I must have kept like, you know, maybe a little pile of five, six of them. I kept, yeah. a, I, I kept a lot of old stuff. Yeah, I'm okay. sure I do. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good. Where are we here? Uh, this is, I think, is it Honda days? Or like, first of all, is this yeah. you at least? Yeah, that's Honda 1987. Uh, 1987. Where are we? Uh, I'm. I'm Yeah, that's Montreal for sure. BF Goodrich. Yeah, that's Montreal Supercross in 1987. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I see answer gear. That year it wasn't free, but we sort of had a deal. So that's when I started with Garnier Boots, which was distributed by RM and R M. And uh, yeah, answer gear. Uh, that's a helmet. I must have repainted maybe five, six times. I had from since 1984 or something so uh that's that for the gear uh that year it was my second year pro uh the first year was to get a top 10 in 86 i was pumped i got a, a seventh in 250 back then the number plates were per classes uh okay i was number eight 125 number seven in 250 i didn't do the 586 so uh after 85, uh, I didn't do that in the <clears throat> first pro year. And uh, I didn't do that good in Montreal, but uh, we made the finals and everything. But uh, I don't know, 88, I did better, but 87 was a so-so year. I was 17. Okay. Uh, when, like, at this time, a lot of, like, there's some pretty pretty big names from the States that are coming up to race the Montreal Supercross. Do you remember being kind of awestruck by these guys at all or – uh, kind of being like, holy crap, I'm on the line with so-and-so? Uh, <clears throat> not really. I mean, it, there was no, uh, sorry. <clears throat> there was no David Bailey or anything. So it was always like the, I don't want to say the second class American. It was like, it wasn't the top guys, but maybe the second group that's still really yeah, fast. The B group, yeah. Yeah. Not really respectful to say that, but uh, that's that's what it was. Uh, not really. I mean, I was just trying to get, make the main and make a top 10, which was my big thing. So Ross was obviously the, uh, the big guy then and Al Dick too was pretty good. So all those guys that we named. So no, I sort of did my thing. 17, young kid, no, didn't think too much. I just want to race and do good. So no, I wasn't starstruck then. Nope. Just wanted to ride his dirt bike. Uh, okay. So, Back in the day, uh, Racer X did like a, can- a Canadian version of this. Um, like, yeah. But is this like a? Like, I, I'm completely unfamiliar. I kind of had. To, I wanted to use this picture because I was curious as to what it was. Like, did did, did motocross action have like a Canadian version for short a short period yeah. of time? What was the What was the did, deal here? Yeah, I think they had it for like three months. It was a really short deal. Uh, okay. I don't know who 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 was behind this. But uh, yeah, we had motocross action for like you know, a few months, which was going to be uh, you know the new media uh, in Canada, and that picture was taken in San Diego, uh, right behind the right behind me is Ronnie Tishner. I was going to say that's Tishner, yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember that. That's pretty good. He was on the right yeah. guy. I like I like to spread the picture, but I think he was on the right guy on that picture too. So yeah, no, he is. He's a, he's he's got like you, you guys are both sporting the exact basically the exact same helmet. I, I actually really like your paint job here. That is uh, that's that's, yeah. that's pretty sharp. 
I had some pretty good guys pinning my helmet. Was, that was pretty good. And uh, actually, that trip, we were in Florida. And after the Winter Rams, we did a few races in January. And we're like, uh, let's drive to, to California. Like you mentioned before, a lot of sponsors were in California and never made it to California before. Like 88, 89, I would go to all the East Coast race and stuff. But uh, and I think I did in 89 the one race in Texas. But never went to California, so let's say let's go to California. I drove with John Dowd, and uh, Ross was around there too at that time. A lot of guys from the East Coast, uh, American guys, Canadian guys. We went to San Diego, so I went to see a bunch of sponsors the week before that and the week after. I went to uh, remember Hill Palm Avenue in San, uh, San Diego. Yeah, it's just just North guys San Diego. The and everything. I wanted to go there, so. I went there too. Keith Johnson was a factory KTM then, and we met him. And uh, actually, he was in El Cajon. So okay. we met. We I, I raced the Supercross San Diego, and uh, was pretty pumped. I made the main. I mean, I made the main the year before in '89 in 250. I made the two class in Daytona, but you know, like on a real Supercross track. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, the the hard pack stuff. You. Yeah, uh, that was the first 250 main I did, so I was pretty pumped. And that actually that race uh, in the main that was battling with Ross and Russ Cartwheel and you know injured himself pretty bad in 1990. He came like pretty late in that season. Uh, his liver or something uh, tore his liver. He had a pretty bad crash in that final. Sadly for him. No kidding. Um, like, did you do? Did you get to ride any like the Honda Land or any of the kind of uh, iconic practice no. facilities or practice spots in, in California, or were you just sort of gypsying around at the time? No, we weren't cool enough to go to Honda Land. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we rode pretty much. Uh, uh, Keith Johnson, KJ was running um, uh, Hill Palm Avenue. They had tracks. They had so much stuff you could ride cliffs, and they had like big long tracks to the hill. So that's we did. We did ride there. I actually went to uh, no, that was that was another trip. We we pretty much rode for like the week before and a few days after, and then we drove back to. Uh, it was uh, right before Gatorback a few weeks after that, so we had to drive back to Florida. That's when they used to have like the one, um, the one national in between the Supercross series, like in be, mm-hmm. in the middle of the Supercross series, nobody liked. So it was Gainesville and then Daytona, and it was Atlanta a few weeks after that. So. We only went to do San Diego, and drove, we drove back. Your your bikes always look good in and around this era. Were were you doing the the numbers and all that, or were you like who was working for you at the time, mechanic wise, to to make the bike look good? Uh, nineteen ninety, I would buy my digit. Actually, this one, I maybe I did cut them up. That's before I because I, I remember nineteen ninety one. I was sponsored by hundred percent. Okay. And it was just in that era where they were doing the backgrounds and the numbers. Uh, die, you would buy those die cut numbers. It was not yep. like a full-on covered bike, but uh, you would get the digit and the background. That was like the cool thing. But I think it was a cut-up. It must have been cut up by hand. And no kidding. Maybe, maybe it's a Manitoba guy thing, but I think, I'm not sure. I think these, those were Jer digits. You should <laughs> ask him. Remember Jerry? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think that's what they were. That's a good question. It, huh. it might have been what they were, because I don't that's remember funny. it. Because used to buy those uh, skinny numbers, flat and long, skinny. They were ugly, and yeah. I, th- I think they were Jer. 
Okay, you know, fair enough. You, see, you ask him. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I always want a nice bike, you know, because I like a good-looking bike. And, uh, you know, I had this different mindset, I guess. My stickers always had to be right for the sponsors, you know. In the end, you want your sponsors. Every time you have a picture, everything was correctly put on my shoulder pad. So I would have to take the, the answer logo on the chest because I had to squeeze the answer. So I would go to R&M and give me this sticker, this type of sticker. So I would spend a lot of time doing all the sticker uh, coordination on my bike and shoulder pad and element. Everybody had to have uh, their own spot. And the biggest one obviously also had to be seen everywhere. But uh, mm -hmm. I try to make it look good. So. And it, the there one thing they see, the levers. Uh, yeah, I was look, looking at the levers. What is going on here with the the? Is that are those little covers on the levers? What's going on here? They're the the, the grips, uh, the Scott grip stickers for the levers. Okay. So you know, the sticker what's really uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's got a tack on it. Smooth, so better grip. You know, we don't use that okay. anymore, obviously. But back then, it was a cool thing. So I had that no new one every time we raced a big race. Have the new sticker. Uh, Scott uh, lever grip lever whatever they were, so that's what <laughs> that's pretty funny. Those are awesome. And yeah, <clears throat> bike bikes looks good, and if you look good, you're gonna ride good. Uh, and that's the end yeah. of the slideshow, my I friend. Um, uh, what is going on here? <clears throat> uh, okay, but um, yeah, so you had a fantastic career. What are the things that you like look back on most fondly from from like your time racing professionally, whether it's going down to the states? racing Canadian nationals, uh, the people that you met, the the times that you shared, what do you look back on most fondly? I mean, it was my life. Uh, I did race uh, about 45 to 50 weeks. No, not 50 because I always took like a month off. But I would race at least 45 weeks out of the year. And sometimes that would be like a Friday night arena cross, Saturday night arena cross, and Sunday provincial. And to make it – because I didn't make – you know, not to today's standard, but uh, I did make good money. Uh, out of racing, I bought my first house, and w which was for me uh, awesome. But to make good money, you had to race every weekend. You couldn't take like like many weeks off. So uh, it was like a, a guy that plays music on the road, like a roadie. That's what we we're doing. Everywhere there was a race, I wanted to show up and. It was life on the road in a box van with my mechanic. Uh, meet tons of people. Uh, we would rent houses in Florida. I used to live in Florida, like, you know, maybe four months out of the year. So it was just a good time when you're a single guy, like you mentioned before, and <laughs> travel across the country. I would go to races, uh, do races in Europe in the fall. So it was fun. We'd, we'd have beat up bikes in the end of the year, but we raced as much as we could. And it was a hell of a time. What's uh, did, did you ever come across? You must have come across. You guys are about the same vintage. Um, <laughs> Lawrence Ham. He's uh, he's a man at Manitoban yeah. that was uh, he's another guy who was a uh, pretty stocky guy, uh, tall guy that, that raced in the early late eighties, early nineties. Uh, you got? Do you have a, a hamburger <laughs> story? Lawrence Ham is number thirty three, was he? Uh, 87 usually. He, but I know him. I mean, he yeah. was a big dude. He's I a mean, big guy. He was yeah. bigger, but he was big. I actually don't have a – sadly, I don't have a story. I mean, 
I definitely want to be on this side at the night at the bar because you don't want to mess with this guy. I mean, he was a yeah. big dude, but no, I didn't really hung out with him. So too bad I don't have his stories. I'm sure you, you guys in Manitoba have a ton of story, but uh, I don't. Well, that, that just means that he yeah, he wasn't quite quick enough to give you uh, too much of a race on too many different nights. But um, <laughs> I would just say, because I know he was sort of like, a, he wasn't the guy who was shy about going down to the States and doing some like barnstorming and riding all kinds of races. And I, I think like, it was just such a different time as far as like racing those small fair races and, and just sort of oh. barnstorming and, and all that fun <laughs> stuff. It was just a completely different time of like the, yeah. the culture of racing um guys like yourself would be like all right maybe i can't make x number of dollars purely off of my sponsors but if i couple that money with uh racing these races then then at the end of the day i can i can uh i can make a living at it and i think what would remind me of lawrence is the fact that he said that he literally bought his first house off of the what he raced that he won as a as a racer and i think that's a pretty cool thing there's not too many guys who can actually say that here in 2023 What's the state under Manitoba in the U.S.? Uh, Minnesota, was, uh, North I Dakota. Michigan, Minnesota. Because I know a lot of guys were going to an arena cross there. I would go do arena cross when I was in uh, in Florida. We would go to South Carolina. There was a lot of fast guys. Jim Chester. Mike Brown mm-hmm. used to do a lot of them. Jeremy Buell was pretty good then. I remember going to arena cross in uh, North or South Carolina. I don't remember, but uh, – People are saying, Carl, you're going to get smoked. There's a lot of fast guys. And I'm like, hell with it. I don't care. I'm just, I got to win in Canada. It doesn't matter what I do here. I just want to, I just want to race. Uh, I think I got like a top five in the 125 and got the whole shot in the 250 class and ran away with it. I was so pumped. But I did, like I said, anywhere there was a race and I was good money that day too. So every time we would hit arena cross or anything, the more you race, the more you racked up the money. And uh, in uh, Canada, I would sell T-shirt on the weekend. I would, uh, and actually J- JSR did that along the way too with me. I would ask start money to go to a local race in Quebec because I didn't want to do this, the local races in Quebec. I was all by myself. Only when JSR came along it was pretty good, but before that there was not really any competition. Right. Some of the guys from Ontario would come. I mean, I love Ship Clark, but. I would race Chip Clack and it would pretty much beat him all the time. So I didn't feel I was getting better. So I was mm-hmm. sort of making a business out of it. You want me to show up to your to your local race? And Honda would double the payout. Uh, back then, I did negotiate that with him, with Honda. And it was only me. I think they did it with riders before. I would sell T-shirt uh, and get start money. And uh, sometime would ask an extra. If they had a jump contest... I was there. It was an extra few dollars. So I was trying to make a show out of it. And I what was your stay. trick? Did you have tricks? Um, back then, it was only whips. That's all you did. Okay. Send the legs out. And along the way, I was the first few uh, guys. We had a few guys in Canada did it. I did the McGrath knack-knack. Not as good as him, but uh, I did do the knack-knacks and jump contest. But, you know, knack-knacks were cool. Knack-knacks yeah. were cool. But, uh, They're still cool. A, a good old whip was just if they had a good jump, you know, whip was the thing. So that's that's all it was. It was a whip contest. So okay. I, I keep talking and I'm like, man, we did a lot of things to get whatever you could get them, us to do for a bit of money. We were we were there. It didn't matter. 
and we're paying, we weren't paid that much for all the risks we took. Do you, do you still have some Carl Valancourt t-shirts? I'd love to see them. Uh, I'm sure I do. I, I, I did try to keep one race shirt a year in, in an old box at home. Okay. Uh, I'm sure I do. I would love to, like, you don't have to send me anything like that, but I, I would love to see an image of something like that. That'd be pretty neat. Cause that is, uh, that is very industrious of you that like, uh, yeah, I, I gotta say that's pretty cool. And I did sell us, uh, sell a lot of them at Montreal Supercross too. Uh, yeah. 50,000 people. And I think I sold a couple of thousand. Just, I used to order a thousand at a time and I mm -hmm. could sell like maybe a couple hundreds on the weekend. That's like awesome. In Valley, in Valley Junction, they had, 12,000 people the one year in 1990. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people there. I mean, we had a lot of good nationals in Quebec. Rimouski, uh, Valley Junction, and uh, a lot of good arena cross, the Quebec Coliseum. We had some good events in Quebec. The Quebec people were really good. So provincial, national, and arena cross. Quebec was a, nice, uh, a good place to be in, in the 90s for racing motocross. Absolutely, it was, and and you and you certainly made it that way as well. Uh, Carl Valencourt here on the Big MX Radio podcast. It's been an awesome time to chat with you. Uh, for those who aren't interested in hearing me and Carl talk about skiing, this is your time to probably shut off the podcast um, because, yeah, like I I, um, I can't let you off here without talking about your not only your skiing but also your son's skiing. Um, your son is on, uh, is he, he's on the, like, he's, is he on the, the Canadian mogul team? Is he on the development team? What, what, uh, what level does he ski at? Uh, I actually have my, my son and my daughter that did race, uh, compete mogul skiing. My daughter went to provincial with Elliot, uh, Elliot and Sandrine. And after provincial, my daughter, uh, quit. And along the way, my son, Elliot made national uh, develop, um, national the team DT. development. Yep. And then he won the Noram a couple of a couple of times. And when you win Noram, which mm -hmm. is like the American League in, in hockey, then you get to a few games in the on the World Cup. So he would jump Noram to World Cup a few times, and it's all a point system. So if you go Noram, you do points, and it, it allows you to go to World Cup. And when you go in World Cup. Well, you got to do enough points to keep your World Cup spot. So, spot, sorry. So, uh, the last years he's been uh, on the World Cup team. So he does World Cup now. He's like a the Moto GP of skiing. You could That's say. That's cool. Yeah. No, that is the absolute pinnacle yeah. of freestyle skiing. That is the highest yeah, yeah, level. Yeah. yeah. So last years has really blossomed, especially this year, and. You know, there's 60 guys that come to a mogul event and only 16 qualify. And that's crazy. The, the day one is usually like, you know, 60 guys out and it's a judge sport, which is the, that's the worst part. I mean, as much as skiing is great, uh, a judging sport for anybody that knows about judging, motocross was great. You rode bad, you jumped bad, uh, you didn't look good, you went off the track, didn't matter. If you came first, you won, that's it. In skiing, if you don't look good, you're not straight, you don't hold your poles perfectly, you don't do that jump perfectly at that right angle, you know, judge will have you, you know, off the final. So it's, he keeps plugging away, plugging away, plugging away. And this year, finally, is a top 10 World Cup. Uh, he made the two top five, the top six. So this year was really like, oh, 
about time, you know. It's a lot of work, uh, but I could say you sort of, sort of made it as in one uh, World Cup. But uh, he's a top 10 guy now and top five on their good day. So that's pretty awesome. Well, there's one guy on the team that's been making sure that there's not a lot of guys who win those down. I know. Events. Uh, I, and I actually competed against the guy. I, really? I was on the, yeah. I, so uh, being from Manitoba, there are not a lot of freestyle skiers from here. Obviously we live no. in the prairies, uh, but my bread and butter was moguls. And so because I was a half decent mogul skier locally, I immediately was put onto the provincial team to go to Canada winter games oh. in 2006. It was 07, 07. Yeah. 07 in, in Whitehorse. So uh, I got 20th in the do- in moguls, like in the singles. And then I got, because I was 20th, I had to face against Mikel in duels. So I was, yeah, so I'm standing in the blocks. Oh, you, and, have a, you have the fifth sheet. I'm going to go look it up. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I'm sure I'm in there somewhere. Uh, yeah, you go look it up. I got absolutely smoked by Mikel Kingsbury. Uh, the two of us are sitting in the blocks. And I look at him, I'm like, dude, like, I'm going to have, like, the best view of your bottom air while I'm, like, skiing through the middle <laughs> section. And I'm, I, excuse me, but in my, my best French accent, he goes, who knows, man, maybe I crash, maybe you win. And I was like, thank you for at least acknowledging that you have to crash in order for me to win. Uh, but, yeah, uh, freestyle skiing is an extremely difficult sport as far as the judging goes. Uh, it goes on speed. Yeah, yeah. It goes on turns. It goes on jumps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah my, mo- yeah, my mogul run was uh, a, a cork seven at the top and a backflip at the bottom. And that's awesome. as, 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 as good as I got. I'm up for 06. You were ahead of your time. Yeah. Yeah. That was like, there's a lot of guys who were running like Matt Bargetts and those guys were running cork sevens in the bumps. Uh, yeah. Most guys were doing either a Bronco or like uh, something <laughs> along those. I actually, I skied with um, Jean-Luc uh, Brassard yeah, Jean-Luc at Brassard. In, in, in uh in at whistler uh 2016 that was one of my coolest days on skis all right so you went to uh did the moment momentum ski camp is that it or uh no it was actually during the winter um peak performance is a company out of that i don't know where yeah, they sponsor Jean-Luc. yeah so uh he was doing like sort of like a ski with an olympian sort of event thing Yeah, and yeah. uh they were doing some trials of that and i my dad spends a lot of money at peak performance i just happened to be out there And uh, they're like, hey, do you want to ski with Jean-Luc tomorrow? And I was like, uh, yes, yes, I would absolutely love it. And uh, yeah, he picked me out of, he picked me out immediately. Like my hands were tight together. My feet never come apart. Yeah. And he's like, well, you're a mogul skier. I'm like, yeah, like I old habits die hard, man. My feet are glued together at all times. Uh, my <laughs> knees, same way. Body, knees are oh, this right? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's the funny, cool. like, I have a pretty funny style. When it comes to skiing, just normally, like I, I can't shake that that style. So uh, I'm sure your son's similar. I you ski you know. quite a bit. Uh, you have a lot of uh, ski area in Manitoba, or you ski out uh, west more? I try and make it out out west two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. I did coach the provincial team for a couple of years, um, okay. which yeah, just like like once it's no different than motocross. Like once your your competing days are done, you gotta just stay connected to it somehow. So. Yeah, I coached yeah, yeah. for a little bit and uh, yeah, whether it was going out to Quebec for junior nationals or uh, going out to out West for junior nationals and, and uh, Canada winter games and stuff like that. I absolutely, I just love it. I, I, I skiing is That's like, awesome. 
my my second love and uh yeah it's, it's cool to see your son doing so well like it's just, Man, he like, he, gonna... he's an extremely good skier and very very yeah, strong in his legs his jumps are really on point so. he's a little too big though he's doing really good first time yeah i'm the same way i'm six feet tall and like all every like every time i like i'd have a, a, a hand come out like if i if i'm pole planting and see I, they see it all, all day long mikhail's and all of those guys like even even alexand like he's small and like they're compact so that when they make mistakes it's less you don't see it as much well elliot is the heaviest guy in the world cup tour He's six. Okay. He's six two, two hundred, and he's yeah. fighting to stay two hundred. So for him to do a jump on the top air when he flips his tall body, and you have BKL that's about five eight, one fifty yeah. pounds. I mean, when he slams through the mogul, he has to have good legs and good core. So it's sort of a challenge. We didn't expect him to be this good, actually, and to be oh, this big. But yeah. if you see the Canadian mogul team, you'll see Elliot. And you'll see everybody else. Everyone see, else, yeah. At least your kids, you know, <laughs> when they go yeah. on tour. So it's pretty funny. But he loves it, and uh, he's doing it now too. So he's he's still studying, though. He's uh, okay. Good. Even in the World Cup, he's <clears throat> he goes through hotels and travels. He carries his laptop, and he's starting to be a, a mechanical engineer uh, at college. And you know, the careers are only so long. So you can't put yep. all your money. And motocross, you can't do that much money. Well, in Canada now, you, I guess you can if you win. But it's always the same, top three, four, five. But for yeah. him, from skiing, the same thing. He made some money this year, a little bit. But yes. nothing to, you know, to, to to make a living out of it. So it's all fun. Uh, he's going through the next Olympic cycle. It's, it's in three years, hoping to make the Olympic. But Olympic is like a bonus. But uh, for him to do good in World Cup is like the main thing for him. Because, you know, yeah. you can have a bad day at Olympic or like this year he had days where he was in, not even in the final and, you know, Deer Valley was top five. So you can make the good day at, uh, at the Olympic. And a lot of athletes, when they don't, good, uh, don't do good Olympics, you know, sort of get discouraged and, you know, mentally really hard. I mean, athletes from yeah, I can imagine. all sports. So that's the deal with him. Maybe next three years, I don't think he's going to get for maybe three or four more years. And after that, the school, uh, finish his school, get his diploma, and, you know, on with the, the next chapter. Yeah, make, make some memories along the way. Uh, yeah, like, I, I remember, like, all the different the places that we got to go ski and just, like, the, the times you spent with your team. Uh, I actually yeah. have a really funny story about Jean-Luc, who um, they, they had rented a van. I think he said it was in, like, Czech Republic or something like that. And when they got the van, it was all loaded down. And so the suspension was, was compressed. Uh -huh. Yeah, this is when he was skiing. And uh, so when they went to go return the van, they took all their stuff out mm -hmm. and the van no longer fit in underneath the parquet. Yeah. So it was stuck. And uh, so they, they, they said they just left it there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was that was one of my favorite stories from if I see Jean-Luc, Jean I will tell him. Yeah, no, you have to ask so him about that. That and when he put he put gas in a diesel. Oh, uh, well, that too. That's another good one. That's a more of a classic, but the one yeah. with the van that's, uh, you know, squatted down with all the weight, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty funny. Down. Like, ski trips for me were always the most fun. Just like like 14 or 15 athletes in a van going yeah. across the country. Uh, has he ever, has he got to ski the the, the Calgary, uh, um, the, 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 oh. is Calgary on the World Cup round? Yeah, it was a few years ago. They didn't have it this year, but uh 
Yeah, uh, Calgary's a tough one. It's steep. It, it's steep. And it, it's I felt so, bad the first year they had the women do it because, like, a few of the women, like, got way too hot in the second second. And, like, well, they remember the course, it starts with a certain gradient. And yeah. then halfway down when you have it dives off. It dives again. You can't see even the can't see the end of the course. So the, that was a pretty gnarly course. Elliot did it a bunch of time, but uh, uh, I never skied that. No way, not me. No. I ride my dirt bike, but not ski. And they're hard too. They're a hard icy mogul. That's that's pretty. I mean, as cool as it is to ski in big deep uh, slushy moguls, when they ski those uh, icy hard moguls, like we ski a lot in Quebec. I mean, you can hear the ski and the. Bam, bam, hard on the knees and the body. I mean, it, it's tough. If you ski, oh, yeah. sure you ski a bunch of time, hard moguls, no fun. Oh, yeah, especially like the, the first mogul that you land on after the jump. Oh, that's where you scrub all your speed off. So it like yeah, becomes yeah, yeah. the size of a Volkswagen. And oh, you exactly. happen to crash it. <laughs> you crash into one of those things. Yeah, you'll be hurting. Uh, yeah. Do you, you ski moguls at all or you you leave that to your kid? Uh, I'm a weekend warrior. I do ski. Moguls, I'll do like, you know, five, ten moguls and then, you know, get offline. But uh, I did ski Apex a few years ago, like the, the, the course in Apex. You, yeah, you know Penticton, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all it was there for training. I went with him and, you know, I, I did the first jump, and then, you know, a straight, uh, just a straight jump to try to hit like the first few moguls. But I did first one, I slowed down like too much, like yeah. the little kids do. And then I had like five, six mogul, but it starts going too fast. I maybe did 10 and it'll boom out. So you can really uh, appreciate what they do when you ski uh, a course. But uh, no, I ski a weekend warrior. I mean, I don't ski that good. I ski fast, but uh, I don't ski that technical like Elliot. Fair enough. Well, you, you sound a lot like uh, my, my dad's 66 years old. And when he watches me ski, he kind of just shakes his head and he's like, I don't know what you like. I don't know how you guys do that. I'm like, well, you gave me the opportunity to learn how to do what this is. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I do use Elliot's ski and I try to imitate him. I'll do maybe three, four moguls, but, you know, I always open my knees. So I don't ski like you guys. Forget it. Yeah. It's good because, you know, for the rest of your life, when you do on a trip or whatever, you travel all over the world, wherever you're going to go, when you know how to ski, yep. you, you can mogul ski, you can ski anywhere. I mean, anywhere. as good as though Alpine skiers are – uh, mogul skiers and all around skier uh you can ski everywhere that's pretty cool yeah no i i thank my dad for it every year uh that i i, I got to ski with jean-luc and I, I it was not planned whatsoever and i was I, I stayed on that guy the 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 tails of his skis all day long and it's because uh dad put up the cash yeah. to be able to to send me off to the mountains but uh yeah. carl this was so much fun man honestly yeah, I, I, I could i could do this for another hour or so but uh and we should catch up another time uh sometime soon but uh yeah this is good i really really appreciate the time yeah thanks and thanks for making me episode one that's pretty cool and there you have it my interview with none other than carl valencourt i really want to thank Bruce Willis over at KTM Canada for putting this all together. He's been bugging me for quite some time to have Carl on the show. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this. And if you want a little bit more of a visual prompt, you can go watch the entire vi video on YouTube and actually be able to see some of the videos or the photos that we were talking about. Uh, I'll probably put that in the beginning of the show as well. Um, so 
Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, check out my sponsors. Uh, support them. Uh, they make this podcast continue to go around. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, to watch these or listen to these. Um, it's so much fun to do, and uh, we're going to keep up with it. Uh, this is a new series that I've started. This is uh, an idea that I've been noodling with for quite some time. Um, but I'm glad to be able to finally pull the trigger on this. Uh, some of the shows that we have kind of coming down the pipe is uh, one with Jeff Emig, as well as Cowboy Kenny Bartram. So uh, what we're trying to do here is I think it would be really cool to sort of uh, be able to flip through a photo album with one of your favorite pros uh, and kind of pick their brains about different years, different gear, um, different situations that they were in and different parts of their career. So um, hopefully this sort of serves that purpose and you guys are enjoying them. And uh, that also allows me to create some video, uh, some content for YouTube. So hopefully you guys are subscribing to Big MX Radio on YouTube as well. Have yourselves a great rest of your day. And as always, thanks for listening. And you know what? I'm only about three days away from going to Loretta Lynn's for the very first time. So without further ado, here's Zach Heron with Out at the Ranch. Best 42 in the land All ages from kids up to grown men Walk through the gates of the coal miner's daughter To make a point clearer than the creek water Who's the best, who's it gonna be In Hurricane Mills, Tennessee Can you feel the adrenaline Dirt flies, hypnotized by the whispering Hear the crowd, everybody's whistling Line on the field If you can put it all together Times. This one week of racing could change your life Everybody knows this is where it all begins Do what you gotta do for 20 plus 2 out at the ranch Golf carts, pit bikes, and rowdy fans Play the national anthem and everybody stands Smell the smoke from the two strokes riding by The 30-second cards on its side Two.